Let's open our Bibles now, though, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, this morning I intend to bury you. To bury you under an avalanche of the best news you could ever possibly hear. Of good news. Of hope-giving news. We live in a world that is filled with bad news. All we have to do is turn on our televisions or open up our smartphones and see what the news has to tell us. And we see bad news on foreign fronts and on near fronts and with the people we know. And all we hear is negativity and bad news. And this morning, you're in for a hefty dose of the best possible news you could ever hear. Let's now stand together as you're able in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to be reading, picking up, we'll just pick up in verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Look down with me at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you that you have given us this good, pure, perfect gift that through your word we come to know you. That by your spirits working through your word we, we were saved. We were brought from death into eternal life that that we still, we whom you have saved are being transformed by your spirit through your word into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you cause our once blind eyes to see. And day by day, by your spirit, through your word, you cause us to see more clearly. Because our hearts to live and our ears to hear your voice. I pray this morning by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of those good purposes that you have and many, many more. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we are concluding this morning a short Six-week series discussing a biblical view of salvation, the doctrines of grace. They are called, summed up in that, in that repeated biblical statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. That, that God saves sinners by his grace for his glory. As, as we just read in verse 44 of John chapter 6, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up. On that last day. And all of this actually matters a lot. It's a matter of much contention among Christians. It's a matter of of much contention uh, throughout history among Christians. And a matter of contention among some in our church. And I would just say to you that 
these things matter. What we believe about God matters. It matters a lot. In as much as we think what people believe about us matters. How much more is that true of God? What we believe about God matters. And more than that, John MacArthur says this. Worship is a response to theology. Theology just means what I believe about God. Worship is a response to what I believe about God. Therefore, we must strive for depth in theology to enhance worship. That is absolutely right. Do you want to grow in your worship of God? I hope the answer for all of us is yes. I hope none of us thinks I've arrived at the purest, sweetest, highest, most glorious worship that God could ever hope for. Oh, no. I hope we all want to grow in our worship. Do you want to grow in your worship? Then be willing to think. Be willing to think hard. Be willing to be stretched. High and lofty thoughts of God lead to high and lofty worship. That's how it works. And central to that understanding is our understanding of salvation. So as we have been approaching this topic of salvation, as we we approach it once more today... I want to remind us of something we read in the Gospel of Luke. We often read as a part of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, and we see this godly man, Simeon. As Jesus is brought by his parents into the temple, and Simeon takes the child Jesus into his arms, here's what he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What does he say as he takes this, this little child, the Lord Jesus, into his arms? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon wasn't seeing a thing. Simeon was seeing a person. Jesus. But how does he refer to Jesus? How is Jesus referred to here? From the, from the mouth of Simeon. As God's salvation. And so we cannot talk about God's salvation without talking about who it is that is God's salvation. When we study salvation, here's why it really matters. It's because we're studying a person. We're studying the Lord Jesus. And that's what we want to focus on. That's what we want to remember all the time as we discuss the topic of salvation, that we are studying the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's salvation. We are not just after the gift of salvation. We are after the giver of salvation. So we need to be very careful in our study of Scripture to make sure that we have a right understanding of the Savior who is salvation. That means we need to have a view of salvation that honors Christ. And a right view of salvation is one that puts him at the very center. A biblical view of salvation is one that leaves no room for boasting in anyone else. No room for boasting in anything else. One that glorifies no one but Christ. And and we want to, to unify. As a church, we want to unify around that Savior. We want to unify around that salvation. So we've taken six weeks to to talk about this topic, a biblical view of salvation, the doctrines of grace. And today we come to the final piece 
of God's great work in salvation. A most precious, a most glorious, a most comforting truth. One, one without which our view of salvation, our understanding of salvation is incomplete. And that is the perseverance of the saints. Said better, it is God's preserving grace. That, that God will keep all whom he saves. As we sang in numerous hymns this morning. Christ will lose none of his own. All will persevere in the faith. Louis Burkhoff describes the perseverance of the saints as this. It is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace is begun in the heart and continued and brought to completion. That's what we're talking about this morning. And friends, there's no better news. There's nothing more comforting. There's nothing more precious than this. The first thing... We need to understand as it, as it comes to salvation and God's preserving grace is all of those whom God has graciously given salvation, he preserves in that salvation. Every single one whom God saves. If we were to look from God's eye view down on everyone he has saved throughout all of history, for every single one of those individuals, he is upholding them in that salvation. This truth is throughout the Bible. Just a sampling of the scriptures. As we just read a couple moments ago from John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives to me will come. So who will come? Every single one that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on that last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. I like what J.I. Packer says commenting on that statement from Jesus. He says, you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. If, if Christ is holding you in his hand and the Father is holding you in his hand and, and our triune God is resolved to hold you in salvation, then you, Christian, are not stronger than that. You, you are not strong enough. No, no one can snatch you out of his hand. I, I remember hearing this many times growing up. We have to accept that statement. It's in the Bible. But I was told this, and maybe you've heard it too. No one can snatch you out of his hand, but what? You can jump. No, no, Christian, you are not strong enough. If God is resolved to hold you, do you really think you're strong enough to say, it doesn't matter what you want, almighty God. I'm very strong, I'm very powerful. I can, I can do what I want. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will cause you by his spirit to endure. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Your salvation, your status before God is only as secure as Christ is. Because you are hidden in him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's to completion, to perfection, eternally. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is just a a sliver of what scripture says affirming this glorious truth. David Klopfelter says this, is it possible for God to predestine us to holiness and yet we not become holy? Can he adopt us as children and then disown us as strangers? Can he give us a guarantee of salvation and then renege on his promise? Is the human will so strong as to overcome divine power? Surely not. What more does God need to say to assure us that he will uphold us to the end? That's exactly right. What more does God need to say? I just gave us a sliver of passages, but this alone is more than enough. There's no getting around it. It is overwhelmingly clear. God preserves all of those whom he gives salvation. Those whom he saves, he saves forever and he will never let us be lost. Flip with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to see this. It's all right here. It's all right here in the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect... Exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. That's the salvation that God has provided for us. He has caused us to be spiritually born again. Here Peter uses that word we see frequently in the New Testament, elect. And according to the foreknowledge of God, God God chose you and then caused you to be spiritually born again. And you don't cause your spiritual birth any more than you caused your physical birth. We understand even from the picture that's used in scripture of what this is that that we're not a cause here. We, We didn't make this happen. What's the nature of this spiritual new birth? He goes on in verse four. To an inheritance that is imperishable. It it never goes away. It never even diminishes. Undefiled. In other words, it's, it's pure. It's perfect. It is without defect. He says unfading. 
It is unfading and it is kept. Where is it kept? It's kept here on earth by your hard work. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. It is kept in heaven for you. It is being guarded. This gift of salvation that God has given to you is being guarded by God in a place where you are not at. You're not in heaven right now. You might have figured that out just by the fact that it was like 40 degrees when you went outside this morning. It's in a place where you can't go right now. It is reserved for you in heaven. It is untouchable to you. Not not only can you not snatch it out of his hand, you can't lay a finger on it. And neither can anyone else. That's great news. That's incredible news. Why not? Why can no one lay a finger on this? It's because of who it is that's guarding it. Because he goes on in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's who's guarding it in heaven for you. Who could possibly overcome that? Who could possibly overcome his power? Christian, that's who's guarding your inheritance. This is an overwhelming truth in Scripture. Second thing then is those who have been graciously given salvation must persevere. They must persevere in Christ only because of God's preserving hand. God has secured everything for his own. He has thought of everything. He hasn't left anything out. He hasn't left anything up to chance. He hasn't just given us a legal decree of justification. If you remember from our study of Romans, justification is that that legal declaration over us, not guilty. Credited, in fact, with the righteousness of Christ. Just like you never sinned and just as if you had always obeyed. God makes that declaration over us and that would be more than enough. That is mind-blowing. That is incredible, but that's not all that he has done. He didn't just put us in right standing with him. He, He went far beyond that. He's given us a new nature, which is full of new desires. A new nature which is free from the bondage of sin under which we once toiled. As slaves, obedient slaves. So that we can now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live lives that actually please Him. We have been given new and living hearts, renewed minds. We have been given by Him a comprehensive righteousness. So that although we still sin, we now find our sin repugnant. We hate it. We despise it. We once reveled in it. We once loved it, now we hate it. We have new desires to put sin to death in our life, to love Jesus and know him more, to receive the fullness of his Holy Spirit so that we can actually take hold of the provisions that God provides for us so that we can persevere in this salvation that he has given to us. This is what this doctrine means. And the constant accusation against this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and they don't usually use that word when they're criticizing it. The constant accusation is this. It will produce laziness. If you believe in this, and they'll call it eternal security, which that's a good word. 
I'd rather have eternal security than eternal insecurity. So I'm fine with that. They'll often call it once saved, always saved. And they say it with a certain tone. Oh, you believe once saved, always saved. As they criticize. And they'll say what, what that is is easy believism. What, what that is is you can live a godless life and still go to heaven. I can remember my college professors. His go-to statement on this was, you believe that you can walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and then do heroin for the rest of your life and murder your whole family, and you're still going to go to heaven because you prayed that prayer one day. That was the go-to attack. I'll just say this, as gently as I can, as lovingly and graciously as I can, that accusation is dumb. It is absolute foolishness. It is actually dishonest. That is not what we believe. Does that sound anything like what we've ever talked about? What we've been talking about this morning or anything you've ever heard preached over the last seven years? Nothing at all. It's dishonest and it's foolish. It's not even close. God takes the initiative in salvation. God takes us out of the prison we are locked in at the bottom of this pit of rebellion and condemnation and hatred towards God. And he causes our dead hearts to live. And then God secures for us eternal salvation, our glorification in heaven with him. So both the starting line and the finish line, God does it all. If we want to use scriptural words, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then every step along the way, every step between those things, but between his giving us life and bringing us out of the pit, and in between that final glorification, in eternity with him, every step of the way, by his Holy Spirit, God provides exactly what we need to not only run the race, but to finish the race. That's what we believe. It's God's desire that every day, in fact, every single step, we would look not to ourselves, but to him. So it's not once saved, always saved. It's once saved, actually saved. Actually saved by God. If we don't believe that, we should stop. Never sing that hymn, Jesus paid it all again. We just sing, Jesus paid it all. I hope, I, I hope it was enough. I hope what I've done in addition to what he did was enough. No, we don't believe that. It's the perseverance of the saints. And more than that, it is the preservation of the saints. It is God keeping us. In the faith, God keeps us. He upholds us so that we will persevere. And friends, we must persevere in the faith. But the promise is, believer, you will persevere in the faith. But obedience is not optional. We must persevere. We must persevere in the faith. And that is in obedience. John chapter 8 Many people have been responding to Jesus' teaching. And we read this in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, that is, if you persevere, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you persevere, you prove yourself to be my disciples. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation. That is already taken care of. Work out your salvation. It is the, the outworking of salvation. Why? He says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In in other words, God is powerfully preserving you. And so as a response to that, it is his desire that you would persevere, that you would be diligent to walk in a manner worthy of this salvation that he has given to you. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be... In any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if we persevere all the way from the starting line that God initiated for us, all the way to the finish line that God secured for us, we prove ourselves to be partakers in Christ. So the call is this. Work out your salvation, Christian. Expend effort. You're not going to coast into this. Work out your salvation. Look to him every day. Exhort one another to faithfulness. And these are exactly the new desires that God gives to his people when he saves us. He doesn't just set us in right standing with him. And and it's on us from there. He gives us new hearts and new minds and new desires. And this is exactly what we desire. It is to work out our salvation in loving obedience. It is to exhort one another to work out their own salvation in loving obedience. It is to worship together Christ. Klotfelter again says, we can never justify, be justified in waiting fatalistically for God to change us. Instead, we must actively work to destroy the power of sin within us. At the same time, we need to do this work in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we must give credit to him for any progress he allows us to make. Again, that is absolutely right. We are not fatalistic. We don't just sit back and hope we're going to drift into it. We work hard to put sin to death, to walk in obedience And faithfulness, and every step of that obedience or faithfulness is owing only to the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives and not to ourselves. He is is the one who is glorified in it. There's a, a, a saying that's become pretty cliche in a lot of Christian circles, and I think a lot of the people that say it, they don't actually mean it, they don't actually understand what they're saying. It's actually, though, a profound truth, and that is this you hear it in sort of different ways. It's not about you. It's all about God. Rick Warren starts the purpose-driven life with some variation of that statement when he wrote that book. He sure doesn't believe it. It's a cliche that people use. It's absolutely true. It really isn't about you. It really is all about God. He is to be praised. He is to be lifted up by your daily persevering obedience, by your turning from sin and your looking to him in all things. Believers must persevere in loving obedience. Third then, well, that's true. And while God will uphold us in that so that we do, 
those whom God has graciously given salvation can and will still give in to indwelling sin. But we will not be enslaved to it as we once were. Genuine believers will not return to the state we were once in. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Christian, Christ's death on the cross set you free from slavery to sin. Never to return again. He says in verse 11, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You hear the language here that we often get in scripture. God has done this for you. It is settled. And you see to it. God God has set you free from your slavery to sin. He will never let you return to it. And you, Christians, see to it that you never return to sin. We're never called to just lay back and fatalistically let it all play out. We're called to be active, to keep our hand to the plow in all of these things. And so he says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, there was a time for every single one of us where that's all we could do. All you could do was let sin reign over you. All you could do was obey your lustful passions. But in Christ, you've been made new. You're now dead to sin. You are now alive to Christ. You have been transformed by God. You have been given the gifts of repentance and saving faith. And now for the very first time, because of that, you can obey Christ. You're not a slave to your passions. You're not a slave to sin. You can obey the command of Christ. And the command of Christ, as, as Paul goes on here in Romans 6 and verse 13, is this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. There is absolutely no neutrality anywhere to be found. You are under something. You will present yourself and all the members of your body. You will present yourself to some kind of master. He goes on in verse 22. But but now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end leads to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God didn't save you and then bring you into some kind of neutral state. You have been freed from your old master in in your slavery to sin in order that you might become a slave of God. A slavery of joy. A slavery that is full of satisfaction. With fruit that leads to sanctification and eternal life, Paul says. That's why the Apostle Paul loves to refer to himself as a slave of Christ. In a couple weeks, when we start our study of the book of James, the very first words that James writes to us will be this in verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not set us into a neutral state. 
Though we still sin, we are not slaves to sin, nor will we ever be slaves to sin because we are a slave of Christ now and he will keep us. He will uphold us. John Murray says it's true that a believer sins. He may even fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods. But it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. He cannot come under the dominion of sin. We can return to that state of faithlessness that we were once in. Why? Because God actively preserves those whom he saves. And one of the ways he does this is through one another. That's why it is so essential that we be vitally connected to the local church. One of the primary means by which God preserves us is one another. God calls believers to care for one another's progress in the faith. We are to, in a sense, own one another's perseverance in Christ. John Piper says perseverance is a community project. So we don't just go do it on our own somewhere. We need one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. We just read it a moment ago, but let's come at it from this angle now. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Encourage one another. Step into one another's lives every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God's plan is that day by day, he will provide us, his people, with strength, with endurance. And one of the primary ways he means to do that is through one another. It's by our involvement with one another. It's by our daily exhortation and encouragement. It is, it is by our entering into relationships of intentionally intrusive love as members one of another. Intentionally getting into one another's lives on a deeper level than just the surface level thing that we talk to other acquaintances about. We have been made family in the body of Christ. Members one of another. John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We need to catch Jesus' wording here because it's significant. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So he's using these two words as synonyms here. Those who do not obey do not believe. Those who believe, in other words, those who have saving faith, obey. Disobedience is unbelief. And unbelief means not having eternal life. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9, And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. A life marked by obedience to Christ is a sure sign that you belong to him. God's grace is transforming. It defines who we are. It defines what we are. It defines what we live for and how we live. And so Christian... Does your life demonstrate the obedience of faith? 
Is, is your faith real? Maybe as we talk about this, <coughs> and we talk about God's preserving of his people for all time, upholding them in salvation, and you're, and you're thinking, well, I, I first want to know if I'm one of them. How do we know? Your life will tell you. Your life will tell you. That's what these passages are saying to us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What he's saying is is this. If, If Christ is in you, your life will testify to that in obedience. Is your life bearing fruit in keeping with salvation? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We're his workmanship, created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saving faith, we need to be clear about this, is not the result of works. But saving faith always works. Saving faith always produces the good fruit of loving obedience. Always. And so Paul says, if Christ is in you, if you are in Christ, and Christ in you, then your life will testify to that with the good fruits of loving obedience. And if you, do, if you examine your lives and test yourself and you see, my life is not marked with that, then Paul says, indeed you may have failed the test. You have great cause for concern. Fourth, and there are those who profess Christ, who live alongside genuine believers in the church, but they actually don't possess salvation. They fail the test. Jesus has a lot to say about this. We don't have time to to even scratch the surface of what he says, but Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, the parable of the soils. Jesus says, as for what's sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then tribulation and persecution arises on account of the world, and immediately he falls away. No root. No root. What what happens when you buy cut flowers from the florist and put them in a vase? Well, they're beautiful, and they smell good, and they look great. What do they look like in two weeks? Dead. They don't have roots. They cannot last. It's not possible for them to last. At first, they look good, and they smell good. They are, in fact, beautiful. Arrange them next to planted flowers with roots. Arrange them next to that when they're freshly cut, and you won't know which is which. They look so vibrant and full of life. But eventually it will become clear. Well, there are those in the church who look good, who even seem to bear fruit, but are not truly connected to the vine. They they do not truly possess salvation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. You heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In other words, John says, they were never one of us. They just looked like it. It just looked like it for a time. But if they had truly been one of us, they would never have left the faith. That's what John says. This speaks to the many, many that that we know. Certainly, if you follow any kind of Christian celebrity, any kind of Christian musician, you see them, they call it deconstructing, they're apostatizing, they're leaving the faith. One of my favorite Christian musicians from a decade ago showed up to the Dove Awards in a dress this week. He being a man, that's the real problem with the dress, otherwise it would have been fine. How do we make sense of this? Well, John tells us they were never really one of us. They never were. If they had been, they wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have abandoned the faith. John Murray says, It's possible to give all the outward signs of faith in Christ and obedience to him, to witness for a time a good confession, to show great zeal for Christ and his kingdom, and then lose all interest and become indifferent, if not hostile to the claims of Christ and his kingdom. It is the lesson of the seed sown on rocky ground. Some appear to be converted. They boil over with enthusiasm for a little while and then suddenly cool off. They disappear from the fellowship of the saints. This kind of temporary, nominal faith, even if it's excited, this kind of mere intellectual consent, on the other hand, yes, I believe all of these things are true, that none of that is saving faith. Even the demons believe They don't have saving faith. What are we told? The demons believe and shudder. Murray continues, we must appreciate the lengths, the heights to which temporary faith may cause, may carry those who have it. The scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it is possible to have very uplifting and ennobling, reforming and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the gospel to come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that those forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace and yet not be partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life. In other words, here's what Murray's saying. It is possible to be so affected by what's going on around you, to benefit so greatly from your proximity to Christ's church, to Christ's people, that you start to look like you're a genuine believer. And yet you actually don't possess saving faith. We've all seen this, haven't we? Play out with people. They're around for a time and it seems like, boy, they're growing and flourishing. And then they just go back to their old life and you wonder, whatever happened there? They were benefiting from proximity to God's people and God's spirit, but they did not possess saving faith. If they had, John says, they would never have gone out from us. They would never have left the faith. For for a time, it looks and feels genuine, but it's eventually proved to be shallow and false. If nothing else, it will be proved false at the throne of judgment. 
So this is how it works. In any local church, there are genuine believers, and very likely there are those who don't possess saving faith, and many of them think that they do. Many of them think that they have saving faith. Why why did God decide that that's how it should be? Did he do it to frustrate us? Did he do it to confuse us? No, the simple answer is he did it because he's smarter than us. We don't have all the answers, but we can trust God. Why did God do it this way? Why does salvation work the way that it works? Have you ever considered that God might have thought of some things that you haven't? When you're scandalized by some truth you see in scripture or something you're trying to wrap your head around, have you considered that maybe he knows some things you're incapable of? As Martin Luther said, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being smarter than you are. God knows what he's doing. What he's doing is good. How many of you thought at one point in your life that you were a Christian only to realize you were self-deceived and in need of saving and then God in his infinite kindness gave you the gift of saving faith? How many of you is that your story? It's the story of many people. It is, I know, the story of many of us. I thought I was a Christian. And then God revealed to me that I was not. Why does God do things this way? It's because he's gracious. It's because he's patient. Consider Judas. Judas who had a false confession. Judas who did not possess saving faith for one minute. In fact, John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus calls him this loving name, the son of destruction. He makes it clear that that Judas' unbelief, that Judas' betrayal were ordained by God. It says that scripture might be fulfilled. There was not one second that Judas possessed genuine saving faith. Scripture is clear about that. And yet for three years of Jesus' ministry, he had the other disciples fooled. He, in fact, I believe, had himself fooled into thinking he was a true disciple. Remember when in the upper room, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and everyone turns and goes, it's Judas. I know for sure it's Judas. No, that's not what happened. So, is it me? Could it be me? Nobody's turning to Judas. They're shocked when it's revealed to be Judas. He had them fooled. He had himself deceived into thinking his motives were good. That he was a true disciple of Jesus. He did not have Jesus fooled for one second. Not for one moment. And whose idea was it to put one like Judas in with the other 11? For three years. To live in close fellowship. It was Jesus' idea. And it reveals something to us about him. What great mercy. What great patience to someone like Judas that he wasn't just immediately consumed in judgment. He had a chance to hear over and over the call to a true and living faith. He had a chance to hear the warnings. As long as he still had breath, he had the chance to come to repentance and faith. As he heard Jesus preach 
For three years, he could have responded like many thousands responded. This is exactly why there are warning passages in Scripture. I know we're pushing it on time. I'll take you to just one of them. When you saw the title was Perseverance of the Saints, you thought it was the doctrine, but it's actually that you have to persevere through this sermon, I guess. (laughs) Hang in there. Hebrews chapter 6. We're familiar with this text. Often we, we, we read this passage and we don't read far enough because we get stuck. But I want you to see what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews knows that there are two different categories of people to whom he is speaking. First, there are those who profess Christ but do not actually possess salvation. That's who's addressed first. In verse 4, it says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who... Uh, For those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. These are the people who profess faith in Christ. Who even have benefited from their proximity to his word and his church. And yet they do not actually possess Christ. They profess Christ. They do not possess Christ. Christ And the author of Hebrews uses strong language in describing them. But we have to keep reading because there's a second category of people here that he's addressing. And the author of Hebrews calls them the beloved. Verse 9 as he continues. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. That belong to salvation. In other words, he says... I'm not talking about salvation with them. I am talking about salvation with you. He goes on in verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each of you to show the same earnestness. Keep persevering. Show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Why are there warning passages like this? For at least two reasons. One is because a mixed community of professors, those who who profess faith in Christ. There's a mixed community. Some who don't possess salvation, and some who do possess salvation. And this mixed community always exists to some degree within the local church. Genuine professors, false professors. The author of scripture never make the assumption that their audience is 100% true believers. They write with the knowledge that some who hear their words are not genuine believers, and they want to call them to faith. They want to call them to repentance. They want to warn them. That's how many of us came to repentance and faith. It is the warnings in scripture that shook us to the core and opened our ears to the gospel. Secondly, though, it's because among those who possess possess true saving faith, we are all still tempted by sin. 
we're all still tempted by sin. And some genuine Christians are going through a season where they are frequently giving in to sin. They are mired in sin. Have you been through a season like that in your life? Maybe you're in one now. Well, those backsliding believers need to be sobered. They need to be confronted like David was confronted. When the, 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 the prophet Nathan came to David with a simple story about sheep, about lambs, and this, this rich man who had great wealth and many sheep, and this poor neighbor who had just one lamb that he cherished and he loved, and the rich man stole his neighbor's lamb, and David was so worked up by the injustice that he says, that man deserves to die, and what does Nathan say? Just imagine Nathan kind of nodding like he does. You're the man. What happened to David? He repented. Psalm 51 shows us just how deep this repentance was, how thorough this repentance was. Friends, that's what God does for his people. He preserves us. He upholds us. Though we sin, he gives to us the gift by his spirit of conviction And repentance, believer, God is employing his eternal power to preserve you. So persist in your obedience. Persevere in your faith. Hebrews 6.11 again. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. To have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You hear those words of effort, earnestness. Don't be sluggish. Through faith, through patience, you'll inherit the promises. And he says these words, we want you to have the full assurance of hope until the end. How beautiful is that? Don't you want that? The full assurance of hope until the end. Let me just close with some words of great assurance. We will end where we started. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. But raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. What a magnificent promise. Eternal life. To even talk about eternal life ending is a complete contradiction. It, it, it can't be. Life cannot both be eternal and non-eternal. It doesn't even make sense to talk about eternal life Ending. If it ever ends, it was never eternal. He says in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then for good measure, he goes on to say in verse 29, that we're held in the Father's hand, and none can snatch us from his hand. None of his sheep are going to end up in hell. None of them. If you are an elect sheep, if you are a a true sheep of this shepherd, there is no way you will ever not be a sheep. Sheep never become goats. I'm not a farmer. 
I think that's true. Sheep never stop being sheep and become goats, even in 2023. (laughs) Jesus says of his people, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. So his sheep come to him and he gives them eternal life and they will never lose it. They will continue in eternal life. If Jesus loses a sheep, he's not a good shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. Charles Spurgeon said the security of God's people lies, first of all, in the character of the life they receive. It's eternal life. And in the glorious character of the one who gives it to them. Why do we have full assurance and confidence? It's because of who the good shepherd is. It's because of what he has told us the nature of this gift that he has given to us is. Let me just close this with this. Romans 8. We know it well. Beginning in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, he says, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believer, if God has chosen you, you are justified. You will persevere. You will conquer. You will not be separated from God's love for you in Christ. Who who shall separate us? What does Paul say? Nobody and no thing. How, How secure are you, Christian? More than you could possibly comprehend. Nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is where our security lies. The love of God is not some principle, it is a person. God's salvation is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who sought you. It is he who saved you. It is he who holds you. And so you can bank on it. You can depend on it. You can be fully assured of it. Let let this word from God fill you with confidence and hope. You are eternally secure because God the Father Almighty, the creator of everything, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you, to live for you, and to die for you. Because the Spirit of God has united you to Christ such that nothing can separate you from his everlasting, comprehensive, sovereign love. There's nothing that could be better than that. That is a sure promise. I'll just close with the words of Charles Spurgeon from his deathbed. This is where our assurance is found. He said this as he lie dying. As time has passed on, my theology has grown more and more simple. It is simply this. Jesus loves me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your love for us in Christ. We thank you for your great salvation. We thank you for your gift of eternal life. 
We thank you for your your Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us to, to walk out this salvation, to work it out in fear and trembling. Thank you, Lord, that, that, that you produce in us new hearts and new minds, new desires, that we desire to obey, we desire to worship, we desire to please you, we desire to surrender all that we are to you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for, for the warnings in your word that, that, Lord, shake us and show us what it would be like if we were to walk away. And so by by those means, you even hold us. Lord, you have thought of everything. You are so kind. You are so gracious. You are so good to us. I pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful. I pray specifically, Lord, for any in this room who are those that we've described. They possess faith. And yet they do not have saving faith. They do not know you. Their, Their lives wouldn't testify to loving obedience. Perhaps they keep a list of rules. But Lord, you who sees the heart know that they are self-deceived. And I pray in your kindness, by your spirit right now, you would open their eyes. As you have opened mine and and so many of my brothers and sisters in this room, open their eyes to see their desperate condition that they might turn to you. I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would make them your own. I pray that you would cause them to repent, to turn from sin. Come to true faith, true worship, to live for you. Pray, God, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this gospel to a a world that is dark and dying and full of bad news. Lord, you have given us good news. I pray you'd make us faithful and bold to proclaim this good news with faithfulness and love. In Jesus' name, amen.